Okay. I appreciate all of y'all's uh, patience. Uh, we, and I say we, but it's usually particularly me, uh, getting used to all the details of, of the electronics on this. But it's wonderful to be with you, uh, even though we're, uh, as has already been prayed, even though we're miles apart, that we would keep remembering, actually, that we would keep remembering several things, that we keep remembering that our fellowship is supernatural uh, and that we agree with God on that so that we, we choose to stay connected. We remain powerfully in prayer for one another. Um, that we look for opportunities to care for and love and minister to one another. And even if we're taking uh, wise precautions, that we not live in fear, that we live in boldness to do the purposes of God for our life and our fellowship. Um, we're continuing our, our study in Acts. And as was read for us this morning, uh, after Jesus was resurrected, he spent 40 days of visiting with the disciples, appearing off and on. Um, and he commissioned them, uh, in fact, commanded them to wait until the Holy Spirit was given to make their witness and their testimony effective. And in verse 8 of Acts 1, we read this, we studied this last week. But he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. So Jesus was not just commissioning that people learn a doctrine, people learn a, a truth, people learn a message, and go do it. He was actually commissioning his disciples Pay attention to what you've seen. Pay attention to what you've heard. Pay attention to what I've shown you. Remember everything that I've lived out in front of you. So again, they were not just attending a class and learning some religious stuff. These men had lived with Jesus. For about three and a half years, they had walked with Jesus. From the time of his baptism with John, until his death and through that death and to the resurrection and then his ascension. Uh, these men had walked with Jesus and witnessed these things themselves. They weren't, they weren't repeating a secondhand tale. They were being prepared by Jesus to effectively, and that's why I said, wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to effectively convey the truth of what they had witnessed. And now as they're waiting for that outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they're gathered together in an upper room uh, they're worshiping, they're prayer, praying, they're breaking bread together, they're encouraging one another. Uh, this had to be an incredible time in the lives of this gathering. So again, as so is frequently true, try to put yourself in their position. That the incredible ups and downs they had gone through, where they had seen Jesus perform miracles, they had, they had witnessed Jesus not only preaching to thousands of people, they had witnessed Jesus feeding thousands of people out of one child's basket lunch. They had watched Jesus raise a child and, and a son in the middle of that son's funeral 
and a friend buried for four days. They had seen Jesus with the, the power and authority over life itself. And they were eager for Messiah of the Old Testament to establish his kingdom. And then, unexpectedly, they had witnessed Jesus' arrest and his horrible persecution. And, and at least for the moment, they witnessed the shattering of every human dream that they were hoping to be fulfilled in Messiah through Jesus. That everything was lost in that death as far as they could see. And we even have the, the report that they scattered, they ran, they hid behind locked doors. That not too strangely, they were actually afraid that what was done to Jesus could now be done to them and they hid in fear. And then the third day, Jesus was raised. And at first, they were skeptical. Mary Magdalene first passed it on. Uh, Peter, James, and John and the, and the, the, the 11 gradually saw. Uh, you remember doubting Thomas was not there the first time Jesus appeared. But he was there the second time, and then he believed. And so these men had been through an incredible crashing of every hope, and then an incredible restoration of every hope in seeing the resurrected Jesus now bringing himself to life and all their hopes were restored again. Now we can do this. And as we studied last week and looked at last week, they even asked Jesus, so are you now going to establish that kingdom, that, that earthly kingdom we've been hoping for? And Jesus sets that dream aside for a future day. He says, that's not for you to know. But here's what you're going to do next. You're going to be witnesses. You were just hoping to reign with me over an earthly kingdom. But I have an incredible calling for you first. You will be my envoys. You will be my messengers. And the word apostle that's used in this passage, and Luke throughout his, his uh, gospel, and Luke in the book of Acts, the, the title apostle always means a sent messenger. That's what the word means. But Luke applies it specifically to the men actually individually by name, chosen by Jesus to be his specific messengers and foundation for the truth of the gospel. And we're going to see that a little bit more today. That the apostle was not just a title. It was a very specific role. And so we have this in... in uh, in verse 21 of Acts 1, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So the part of what we get to see here is that as the apostles, now, now down to 10, I'm sorry, now down to 11, um, are saying, you know what, Jesus chose 12. One betrayed us. We need to restore that 12th. But they're looking for someone genuinely qualified. And they're recognizing as we're going to go out and preach, Jesus already said, we must be witnesses. So we don't want somebody who came to the game late. We don't want somebody who, who showed up halfway through at intermission. We want somebody who's been here from the very beginning. We want somebody who was there when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. We want somebody there, somebody who was there 
when John testified that this was the Lamb of God and that he saw the Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. We want somebody there who is with us through, through all those events of miracles and all those events of, of healings and restorations and amazements of the hand of God through the life of Jesus. We also want somebody there when we were shattered with hopelessness. We want somebody there who is with us through those dark nights and those dark days before we comprehended the resurrection. And then we want somebody there who saw Jesus resurrected, who listened to him. We have in 1 Corinthians 15 that during those 40 days, not only did Jesus appear to the women who had come to bury him, I mean, to uh, anoint him for burial, not only did it appear to the disciples, to the 12, to the 11, uh, he appeared to 500 apostles, 500 disciples at one time. 500 believers that already belonged to him saw him resurrected. And Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 15 that most of those 500 were still alive at the time the book of Corinthians was being written. They were still there as witnesses. And so now as they're getting ready to choose somebody who's going to be a witness and choose somebody who's going to step into the role of apostle, that that entire ministry witness is a, is a basic requirement. And it's worth recognizing, if you drop down to verse uh, 25, they're not just choosing somebody who is a witness so they can tell. They're choosing somebody who's going to occupy the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. So again, they're not just saying, we need one more guy to talk. We need somebody who's specifically going to step into this role. And so he's a faithful witness. He was with us through the whole thing, from the baptism to the resurrection. And he's stepping into the role of apostle. So we're going to come back to Matthias, who was chosen out of that lottery system. Uh, we're going to come back to Matthias in a while, but I'd like us to take a little detour and look at the, the ministry and the role of the apostle in the church. And so again, the word apostle already existed. It meant a messenger, an envoy, somebody sent with a message. But now for the church, at this point, it's being given a very specific meaning. It is those chosen by Jesus. And if you'll go to Acts 1.8, oh, actually, we already did that. Uh, Acts 1.8 says, you're going to be my witnesses. But now go to Luke 6. Let's go back to Luke 6. Because I want you to see this process as Jesus is first choosing the 12. It says at this time, Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 12, it was at this time that he, Jesus, went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And I like, the, I, I like this process that's being described to us because we're being told before Jesus 
named his apostles. He spent the entire night in prayer. So this was not a light decision. This was not an impulsive decision. This wasn't just based on who are the 12 guys who seem most excited about this stuff? Who are the 12 guys who have most impressed me with their astute questions and their confident um, declarations of truth? He went and consulted God. He went and consulted the Father and said, Father, I'm going to choose the 12 tomorrow, and I'm going to spend the whole night pouring out before you my heart's desire that you and I together choose those 12 men. And so after that night in prayer, he goes to his disciples. And, and one of the things, again, is, is the recognition. Jesus had a, a larger group of disciples that were already following uh, we have, we'll come back to that, but there were already a group around Jesus beyond this 12, but he put, pulled out of that group 12 men and named them to this ministry in this role. And so if you go back to, uh, whoops, where'd my screen go? There it is. If you go back to Ephesians 2, we'll read this next. Let's start in verse 19. So this is Paul talking to the church. And he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints on our God's household. So in, in this passage, Paul is saying, you've now been joined to all the believers of all of time in history. Having put your faith in Jesus Christ, you now join Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You, you join Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel. You join David and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You have now been bonded in to the, to the eternal history-stretching family of God. And he says this, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And so here we have the, the idea of a foundation, Jesus being the cornerstone, but he's saying the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles here in the New Testament they are now the foundation on which our faith and our truth and our fellowship and our teaching rests. And again, it's worth remembering, the New Testament didn't erase the truth of the old. The New Testament, and Jesus specifically, fulfilled the old. So everything that the prophets had said in the old still matter because it validated the identity and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And he's saying that teaching of the prophets is still a foundation for who Jesus is. But now here's the foundation of the apostles. And the apostles didn't have a dream. They didn't have a vision. They didn't get together and try to figure out what seems true to us. Let's start teaching. The apostles were sent by Jesus to tell the witness, to to put their hand up and say, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth about Jesus Christ. And that foundation for, the, for Christianity is, is real important to understand. There, there are a multitude of religions and faiths in the world, 
that are based on a vision, a dream, a thing that nobody else saw but, but the person starting that thing. And whether it's an offshoot of Christianity or whether it's a whole completely different thing than Christianity, somebody is saying, I had a dream, I had a vision, trust me, just trust me. And Jesus is saying, I will not settle for that, for my church, for my family. My family will hear men and, and ultimately women as well who saw me do these things and are not only willing to speak the truth of what they witnessed, these men and women will be willing to die for what they've seen and witnessed. And we won't go into it right now, but there, there have been other claims that, oh, I witnessed that thing too. And, and Mormonism is, is one of those. It's not the only one. But where several men said, oh, they don't exist anymore and you can't see them, but I was a witness to the golden tablets from which the Book of Mormon was written. And ultimately, all three of those witnesses recanted their witnesses, their witness before they died. And here's 12 men, one eliminated by treachery, and the 11 saying, we will now pour out the rest of our lives to going around the world and telling the truth of what we see. We accept the ministry of sending that Jesus is handing to us, we will go and speak it. And then they can say, I can't take this back. I actually saw these things. So you may kill me for what I saw, but I cannot take back what I witnessed across three and a half years of the profound fulfillment of Jesus, of every prophecy of Messiah relating to his earthly ministry. And then everything miraculous about his miracles and then ultimately his own death and resurrection we we are even willing to die and most of you know this uh of the 11 only john uh didn't die and there's uh extra biblical meaning it's not in the bible but there's plenty of extra biblical uh legend and story uh, around john uh attempts to execute him that didn't work uh several attempts to execute him that just didn't take. But if God said, John, you're going you're gonna to stay alive. You have more to do. I'm keeping you alive. And then John ended up writing the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, in about 95 AD, when he was an old man exiled to the island of Patmos. And again, instead of execution, exile. The other 10 died martyrs' deaths. Not old age, martyrs' deaths for what they believed and what they have witnessed and what they could not take back. And it's really interesting if you'll turn to Revelation 21, because we have a, an interesting um, follow-up to this. In Revelation 21, Jesus has brought John up into heaven and incredible revelation is being shared with John. He is seeing things and being shown things uh, that no one else has seen or known. And one of the things he sees in Revelation 21 is he's taken all the way to the end of time and he gets to see the new Jerusalem, the eternal city being brought to earth. And he sees the, the city descending and he, he describes it like a bride, a beautiful bride being presented to her husband, to the bridegroom. 
and Jesus is the bridegroom. And as he's describing the city, here's one of the things we read in verse 14 of Revelation 21. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So again, here's scripture itself. Here's revelation itself. Here's Jesus revealing to John. It still matters to me for eternity that I named these apostles and they fulfilled their ministry. And again, it's worth recognizing he didn't just say a random number. He said 12. And that somehow Peter and the others in that upper room waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they recognize there's something incomplete here. We are going to be the foundation of belief for the church. We're choosing somebody to step into this ministry of apostleship. We want somebody who's willing to die for the truth of what they've seen because they've actually seen everything from beginning to end of the ministry of Jesus. And we will take no less than that. And so that, that recognition that the apostles, by their testimony, by their personal witness, they are the foundation of, of canonical truth, of accepted truth in the New Testament church. And again, there may be a, a multitude of offshoots from Christianity that claim different things and accept different visions and allow someone else to be their, their higher apostle than the 12 so that they can bring in new teaching that was never spoken by Jesus. But God has provided the apostles and their teaching and the help of the Holy Spirit on them to speak it clear, clearly and truthfully so that we had a firm foundation. And in fact, when we, when we get uh, two or three hundred years later, when we get to the founding of Scripture or the clarification and the protection of Scripture, that apostleship matters. That one of the criteria for choosing books that would be included in our canon, what we have as the Bible, it wasn't just who claims to speak. It was if we're going to accept a book into, into canonical authority for the fellowship of the body and the teaching of the body of Christ, that book either needs to be written by one of the apostles or that book needs to be known and approved and vetted, so to speak, by the apostle, by someone who is taught directly by the apostles. So Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, he wasn't one of the 12. We know he was around. He was there for many of those events. But he was also a nephew of Peter. And he spent time interviewing Peter. Luke was not one of the 12. But he got to know the 12. He spent time with the 12, interviewing the 12, so that he could write both Luke and Acts. And then he traveled throughout Paul's ministry. So Luke was right in the thick of things where the apostles could clarify and verify his writings and say, yes, we're the one who told Luke that that event happened. So again, that we have a trustworthy foundation of the canon. So today, if somebody found a book, and we've talked about this before, if today somebody found a book that claimed to be written by one of the disciples, somebody found a book that claimed to be written by somebody who had a revelation from God, that book would literally have no hope of being included into the canon of Scripture because there is no living apostle to say either I wrote that or I taught the man who wrote it and I approve of what he wrote. So we're past the time that somebody can add to Scripture. 
And that actually protects us so that century after century after century, and we actually have better, better archaeological and, and documentary evidence for this than ever before, that the New Testament we have is closer to the exact writings of the original than we've ever had in human history because of, of literally thousands of documents that have been discovered by which they can cross-check and verify. So it's really important that recognizing, and, and Peter and the others were recognizing this, this apostleship will matter, they didn't know how long it was going to be, for at least the next 2,000 years and maybe more. This apostleship will matter. And I want to turn aside for just a second, because I, I think it's an appropriate question to ask, what about Paul? So let's turn to Acts 9 for just a second. Because in Acts 9, we have this incredible event where Paul, who has been actively persecuting Christians, and, and the word even tells us that he's been persecuting Christians with passion. He is fervent in his desire to capture, imprison, and put to death to stop the teaching of, these, of this new cult, the Christians. And as he's continuing to travel around, he even gets letters of introduction from, from the Jewish leaders so that he can go from city to city and have authority to arrest or put to death believers. And in chapter 9, Paul is on his way to Damascus. Actually, his name at this point was Saul. But Saul is on his way to Damascus to continue that persecution. And actually, I'm going to start a little earlier. So let's start at verse 1. And I'll continue down to verse 6. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from them to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, which is what they had started to call the Christians, the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. And one of the things very tender out of this passage is the identity that Jesus is making it real clear. My people suffering is me suffering. <clears throat> My sons and daughters being persecuted is me being persecuted. So again, Paul faces Jesus at a very tender moment in Jesus' heart. Paul, you're hurting the people that matter to me, that care about me. And he stops Saul in his tracks, and he sends him to go wait, and he is commissioned to become a minister of the gospel. The very man who's, who's capturing and putting to death believers is now commissioned directly and personally by Jesus to go be an emissary of that gospel. And if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians 15, <clears throat> we have this passage. Let's start at verse 3. For I delivered to you, this is Paul himself now writing to the Corinthians, 
as a first importance, would I also receive that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And when, when Paul is saying, according to the scriptures, what he's saying is in fulfillment of prophecy. The Old Testament scriptures would have let us know this was coming. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. So Paul here is claiming for himself, out of the direct choosing an assignment and and direction of Jesus, that just like the other 11, he was chosen to be an apostle. He was chosen to be that sent emissary. And, and in, in many ways, I think, most Bible scholars would agree with this, that in many ways, Paul, rather than Matthias, seems to fulfill the visible ministry of the 12th apostle. And that that is what Paul is taking to himself, um, is I'm an actual apostle. I'm actually sent and commissioned personally by Jesus Christ. And now that, that word apostle is used a few other times in the New Testament, and, and we won't go there right now, but where it's meant, again, in a very few particular instances, as someone who is sent with authority to go be a messenger. But in the ministry, in the role to the church of an apostle, that Paul was, was naming for himself out of Jesus' commissioning, taking to himself the role of that 12th apostle. Now, one of the things that's interesting is our word missionary, through, through a couple of translation steps, is derived from that apostleship mindset, from that sent one who, take, who carries a message. So in that sense, now in the church, the, the modern church, our, our missionaries are, are the apostles who carry the truth to new places, who, who carry the gospel to where it hasn't been heard, hasn't been taught, who carry the word of God and, and are even developing the word of God in a variety of language. They're taking the gospel as messengers sent by God, uh, if you will, uh, in the small a apostleship on behalf of the church. These, these 12 were the capital A apostles assigned by Jesus. But let's go back to Matthias. So we have here again in Acts 1 that Peter and the others have prayed. They've asked God, who knows all hearts, to help them choose. And they've chosen Matthias. And that lottery fell to him, and he's now put in the role of that apostleship. And, and in this sense, Matthias is similar to many of the original apostles. Only a handful, Peter, James, John, 
Philip are, are shown carrying out their ministry in the book of Acts and into the books ahead. And there is not a, a lot of details about that, about the others. In fact, everything we know about the apostles, aside from that small handful, actually comes from extra biblical sources. Other letters, other other documents shared back and forth among the church fathers. So they don't have the authority of scripture. But again, we have we have the record of each one of that that original eleven, ten of whom died. But here's the thing about Matthias. Evidently, some of the best research on Matthias indicates that he also died for the gospel. Um, and there's couple of different ideas about where, and one of them seems to be that he probably died while giving uh, the gospel to Ethiopia. But that this man, Matthias, no other, no other claim to fame except that the Holy Spirit chose him in that moment to fulfill that role, and he faithfully carried out that role. That his history and, and his record within the early church was a faithful minister carried out the gospel, traveled to share the gospel, and then one day died for the sake of the gospel. But again, Matthias could not repudiate his witness. He could not take back the truth of what he had seen, even if it resulted in his death. And I think one of the things that we now get to, uh, to go to is recognizing my calling, your calling. That in the same way as Matthias and the others were faithful to their calling. So we had uh, read for us. I, I didn't, my eyes aren't good enough to actually read my screen, so I couldn't see who was reading it. But we had read for us Ephesians 2.10. And that recognition that God is saying and declaring this, actually, let's go to that again. Ephesians 2.10. And this is an incredible passage. So after he's talking about the fact that we are saved by grace through faith as a gift, then he gets to this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So here's a mystery, and, and I hope you and I listen to this prayerfully with, with an ear for the Holy Spirit. What God is saying to you is if you have ever put your faith in Jesus Christ, God has a calling on your life. He has a multitude of specific moments planned in your life. He has a multitude of specific relationships that you're this incredible craftsmanship of God. You're a work of art in God where he has crafted your life. He has crafted your skills and your spiritual gifting. He has crafted your connections and your opportunities. He has crafted your, your natural skills. He has crafted moments of opportunity in your life where, where you can move forward in this direction or that direction. That God himself is taking credit for crafting your life to carry out a valuable supernatural calling. And most of that supernatural calling won't even look supernatural. And Jesus made that real clear when he says, you just give a cup of water in my name and I promise you, not only is that moment supernatural, 
That moment will be remembered and honored and rewarded for eternity. And that you and I get to learn to keep thinking this way. Father, every day in my life is a supernatural day in terms of your craftsmanship. Help me to, help me to choose to accept my calling. And that will have specifics tied to your, again, your skills, your potential, and your supernatural gifting, as God talks about in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. Uh, we are gifted in specific ways for ministry. But one of the things that we've talked about before and that we get to take out of this is the recognition that at the core of my calling and your calling, is to be a faithful witness. So when I have seen God work in my life or I've seen God work in your life, I get to faithfully report to others the work of God. When I have seen God work cleansing and change in my life, I get to faithfully tell the story of his work and his change. And if I take credit for it, I'm not telling his story. But if I tell his story of how he changed me and transformed me, I get to be a faithful witness. And then when I see God do miracles in answer to your prayers and my prayers, I get to be a faithful witness. When I get to see God teach someone and take their life or their marriage or their relationships forward into healing and forgiveness and reconciliation, I get to be a faithful witness who lets somebody else know there is hope for help and power in Jesus Christ because I've seen it. And I, I know I've said this before, but I, I feel like I have a front row seat with the counseling I get to do through the week because way beyond, powerfully and truly, way beyond anything that I could do or persuade or accomplish, I get to see God bring healing and reconciliation forgiveness and mercy, transformation of character. And frequently, which I've also, also shared, frequently in situations where I myself was telling God it was hopeless. Father, this one won't work. Father, this one won't heal. Father, this one won't change. And then he does anyway, because he's God. And because he brings hope and power to that moment. And what he's looking for is a man, a woman, a child. As we sang just a few minutes ago, who will say, I trust you. I hear your spirit saying it. I hear you calling me to it. I trust you. And now you and I get to do that for our finances. We get to do that for our health and our well-being. We get to do that for our purpose of the day. We get to do that for who we connect with and how we reach out to people and, and minister to people, how we get out of our own fear or our own comfort zone and making sure we have enough toilet paper to go care for someone else because we recognize I have a supernatural calling and I want to rise up and be a faithful witness who tells the truth of what I've seen. Well, we're getting ready to go ahead and, and pray here in a minute. Um, but I hope that you and I take out of, out of Paul's history, out of Matthias' history, out of the history of these other 11 men, that we would take fresh, fresh recognition for our calling and fresh commitment to pursue it. And, and to recognize this, the least, if you put yourself in the, in the, under the label of the least, where you would say, oh, I am the least of God's followers. 
whether because of age or ignorance or confidence or whatever. It's really important that we grow in this recognition. The effectiveness of my calling and the effectiveness of, of my fulfilling that calling is not about how impressive I am. It is absolutely not about how old you are, how much you know, or how impressive you are. In fact, those things can get in the way if we make them the point. The issue is that a six-year-old child trusting in the life and the authority and the power of Jesus Christ dwelling within them can speak the gospel powerfully into another person's life and lead them to salvation. This is about Jesus dwelling within us to bring us power. And that's why Jesus told the disciples, and we still get to remember it, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we have no power. And so we choose the life of Jesus Christ dwelling within us through that Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we're going to face a multitude of challenges and details to our life that we're not ready for. But I thank you that you're ready. And Father, I pray for myself. Um, out of my own laziness or my own self-absorption or my own distraction, that you would be gracious to get my attention. Gracious to get my attention, Father. And pull me over and over and over again back to the awareness of my calling. Back to the awareness of your power and your equipping and your readiness for the moment of calling. And Father, that that moment of calling is all day long. It's not when we're getting to do something religious. It's not when we're getting ready to, to just witness to the gospel, Father. It's how we choose and think and operate all day long. That's the moment of our call. That our very lives would give witness to the truth of what we believe. Our very lives would tell the truth about who you are in us. Even when nobody's watching but you, Father. Even when nobody's watching but you that our lives would give witness to the grace and the truth and the salvation and the transforming power of Jesus. And Father, I thank you that right now you know anybody who's here listening and joining in who's discouraged. And I pray that your spirit would be powerfully active to bring them encouragement. Father, if they feel disqualified, to remind them that you're the qualifier. You're not the one who comes measuring us to see if we're qualified. You're the one who brings the qualification. That anyone feels too weak, they feel that their faith is too tiny. That you would remind them that in response to a father's doubting, but tiny, tiny, tiny bit of faith, you healed his demon-possessed son. That's who you are. You're the one who brings power to a tiny little bit of faith placed in you. So, Father, please bring encouragement to those who are discouraged. To those who are fearful, remind them that you reign. You are sovereign. And you have purpose for our life, Father. And whether, whether we live today or whether we die today, that our faith with you means we are already eternal. We have nothing to be afraid of. We already are eternal because we trust you. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. And I want to say one thing before I end, and that's uh, that we have we have a young lady in our fellowship, um, Ann Miedema, who has um, chosen and decided and is eager to be baptized. 
And so I just want to bring that to your attention. We're going to be looking for soonest opportunity uh, to provide her with that opportunity for baptism and to share that with the fellowship. But I also want to put this uh, encouragement and challenge to everyone else. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you've really trusted Jesus dying on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, but you've never been baptized, uh, that you would make the decision to follow through on that baptism. Again, not because the baptism is going to save you. Your faith in Jesus was the gateway for salvation. But that now in obedience, um, let us know that you would like to be baptized and we'll, we'll make sure that that can happen soon. Thank you very much.